content notes, state violence, anti-blackness, racism, ableism, autism, police brutality, incarceration, murder, white supremacy. Disability Solidarity Completing the Vision for Black Lives by Harriet Tubman Collective Comprising no less than 20% of the United States population, people with disabilities are the largest minority group in the nation. Notably, among differing socially constructed racial categories, the black community has the highest prevalence of disability, with almost a full quarter of the black population having some form of a disability. And yet, on August 1st, 2016, the Movement for Black Lives, the Movement, released a groundbreaking policy platform outlining the movement's idea of what is required to build a more just world for all black people that did not once mention disability, ableism, autism, or the unspeakable violence and black death found at the intersection of ableism, autism, and anti-black racism. The six-point platform which was supported or endorsed by more than 50 organizations from across the country, stated in part, We believe in elevating the experiences and leadership of the most marginalized black people. We are intentional about amplifying the particular experience of state and gendered violence that black, queer, trans, gender nonconforming, women, and intersex people face. There can be no liberation for all black people if we do not center and fight for those who have been marginalized. It is our hope that by working together to create and amplify a shared agenda, we can continue to move towards a world in which the full humanity and dignity of all people is recognized. The platform goes on to propose many crucial changes to the ways in which the government and its institutions treat black people providing a framework to combat many systems of oppression experienced by black people in the United States and abroad. Many, however, were left wondering why disability was erased and ableism and autism omitted from this platform, especially considering the critical role ableism and autism play in every institution named by the movement as a purveyor of violence against black bodies and communities. Specifically, Many were confounded as to how a movement whose primary focus is ending police brutality could outright ignore the violence experienced by black, disabled, and deaf people when statistics prove that at least 60 to 80 percent of the people murdered by police are, in fact, disabled and or deaf people. The following are a few more of the many ways in which black disabled people are disproportionately impacted by state violence. People with disabilities are twice as likely to live in poverty because poverty operates as a cause and consequence of disability. Children with disabilities enter the juvenile legal system at five to six times the rate of youth who do not have disabilities, with 65% of boys and 75% of girls in juvenile detention having at least one mental illness and up to 85% of children in juvenile detention having at least one disability, and 55% of male state prisoners 
and 73% of female state prisoners have a mental health condition, with just one in three state prisoners and one in six jail inmates receiving treatment for their illness since being admitted. Within each of the above-provided statistics, black people and other negatively racialized individuals are grossly, disproportionately represented. Indeed, ableist social norms often criminalize the existence of disabilities such as schizophrenia, autism, oppositional defiant disorders, and developmental and intellectual disabilities. To be sure, black people with these and other disabilities are particularly vulnerable to unjust encounters with school officials, police officers, and the criminal legal system. Many black deaf and disabled leaders, especially those who have given their time and talent to the movement for black lives, have noticed this deficit and believe that it reflects much larger problems with ableism and autism in the movement. We, the undersigned, united under the coalitional name the Harriet Tubman Collective, are here to remind the movement that liberation will never come without the intentional centering of black, disabled, and deaf narratives and leadership. We know this because it never has. We understand, based on our communication with some of the movement's drafters, that at least one person whom the movement identified as disabled was at the table when drafting this policy platform. However, the movement did not connect with self-identified black, disabled, and deaf advocates, community builders, or organizers who have been on the ground and actively engaged in truly intersectional anti-violence work to support in the drafting process. This led to the movement's overall failure to adequately address the disparities and specific violence and oppression that exist at the intersection of blackness and disability and deafness. This absence and erasure of the black, disabled, and deaf experience was apparent within critical foci of the platform, including ending the war on black people, reparations, invest-divest, economic justice, community control, and political power. The lack of understanding about the black, disabled, and deaf experience was further seen with the use of the term differently abled, which is considered offensive within disability communities. The phrase differently abled suggests that we are the locus of our disability when we are, in fact, disabled by social and institutional barriers. Not only is this term offensive, but it also reifies the marginalization that black, disabled, and deaf people face on a regular basis by and within our own communities and oppressive state institutions. If a staunch political stance is going to be taken about the black experience, it is a grave injustice and offense to dismiss the plight of black disabled and black deaf communities. This platform and work is wholly incomplete if disability is not present. To be sure, no successful movement has existed without our leadership, and no movement will be successful without us. Any movement that seeks to end police violence has no choice but to work to undo the racism and ableism and autism which together make black, disabled, and deaf people prime targets for police violence. 
For instance, Darnell T. Wicker, a black deaf veteran, was killed by police officers in Louisville, Kentucky on August 8, 2016. Note that Darnell Wicker was deaf, not culturally deaf. Body camera footage shows officers shooting Darnell Wicker multiple times within one to two seconds of issuing verbal orders on a dark night. However, Darnell Wicker relied on speech reading to communicate. His family asserts that he likely never heard or comprehended the officers. The circumstances surrounding his murder made clear the critical importance of naming Darnell Wicker's deafness and blackness as having been criminalized by police officers. Yet still, no national coalition, network, cohort was found to have even made mention of Darnell Wicker's deafness during their physical or online actions in his name. One all-volunteer national deaf and disability justice organization issued a powerful statement in American Sign Language, Spanish, and English calling for disability solidarity with Black Lives Matter in response to unrelenting police brutality against deaf and disabled people including the murder of two deaf men last month alone. This sort of intersectional approach is sorely lacking in national organizations, networks, and coalitions that claim to fight for racial justice, disability rights, and deaf rights. This lack of intersectionality leads to yet more black, deaf, and disabled people being killed by the police. The Harriet Tubman Collective submits that any struggle against white supremacy must also address all of its interrelated flaws, including ableism and autism. It is disingenuous at best, and violently irresponsible at worst, to claim to want justice for those who have died at the hands of police and neither name disability nor advance disability justice. We call upon organizations that label themselves intersectional to truly embrace that framework, and we remain as a resource and network of support to any who seek this end. We demand a centering of the black, disabled, and deaf narrative, as this narrative represents 60 to 80 percent of those murdered by police, including all of those names that the movement continues to uplift whilst erasing and dishonoring part of their humanity. Tanisha Anderson Sandra Bland Miriam Carey Michelle Cousseau Izel Ford Cherise Francis Corinne Gaines Eric Garner Freddie Gray Milton Hall Quintonio Legrier Kayam Livingston, Simone Marshall, Laquan McDonald, Natasha McKenna, Stephen Watts, Darnell Wicker, Mario Woods, and countless other black, disabled, and deaf victims of police brutality. We will not be martyrs for a movement that denies our humanity. We demand that social justice coalitions networks, and organizations end the violent erasure of disability from these and all other narratives of the victims of police violence and murder. We further call for the end of the stigmatization of black, disabled, 
and black deaf people by those who claim to fight for us. We are not an afterthought. We are here. We are fighting for all of our lives. We are black. We are disabled. We are deaf. We are black. Our black disabled lives matter. Our black deaf lives matter. In solidarity, Patty Byrne, Kylie Brooks, Neil Carter, Patrick Coakley, Candace Coleman, Dustin Gibson, Timotheus Gordon Jr., Carrie Gray, Christopher D'Angelo Huff, Saray Jarrell Johnson, Laurel D. Kilpatrick, Carolyn Lazard, Talila A. Lewis, Leroy F. Moore Jr., Melissa Thompson, Alexis Tolliver, Heather Watkins. Content Notes Sexual Assault Intimate Partner Violence Abuse Trauma Time's Up for Me Too by Carolyn Gehrig Last year, when I most needed my voice, a blood blister grew in the back of my throat, making it harder to speak. New bones grew in the floor of my mouth, crowding my palate, further exacerbating the issue. I often ran my tongue over them to keep from biting. Last year I went on dates with people who said, You're hot, like it was some sort of flattering problem or puzzle. They were trying to figure out how to separate my attractiveness from my disabled body. Sometimes on these dates, I ran my tongue over my new bones, usually when dates got lazy enough to ask me to solve their sex puzzle for them. They'd lean in conspiratorially, eyes glinting, and coyly ask, So, how does that even work? Recently, I've been thinking about the Golden Globes and Time's Up and how powerful it was to see the way women can come together and flood a red carpet black, how it recalled the National Mall in pink, how, in the sea of both, I could not see myself easily. Whenever something terrible happens to a disabled someone, people shrink and say, who would do that? Or, it's unimaginable. Then remove it from their minds. They cannot bear to imagine it, so our reality remains deniable, though it is as provable as our unseen bodies. We keep talking about representation and image, and the best representations of disability at the Globes were three billboards outside Ebbing's, Missouri, which liberally used federally recognized hate speech when referring to disability, and The Shape of Water, which featured a crypt-up lead actor in a fairy tale disability narrative with a mer-monster. When I was three, my adult Aunt Virginia came to live with us. What was then her clinical diagnosis is the slur referenced in three billboards. She is developmentally disabled and intellectually impaired. That slur was enshrined in the names of organizations that helped her while I was growing up and was flung around my schoolyards for cruelty. Years ago, I was married to a man who edited television shows. He sometimes talked about how an image could shape a narrative. He cut funny things up and spliced them together. He tore me up, mostly inside my body, mostly when I slept. 
I did not know what was happening to me for years. He left considerable proof, and I attempted to prosecute. My mother, though she had three kids and her own job, was Virginia's primary caretaker. She made sure Virginia got dressed, ate breakfast, and got on the bus to the sheltered workshop where Virginia worked for eight hours, five days a week, until long after I moved out of the house. My mother picked Virginia up in the evening, made dinner, and sat at the kitchen table with her into the night. I recognize all that my mother did, and I still related less to the tender maternal ladybird than to the shape of water. You can spend a lot of time with someone who both others and adores you. This is true of creators as well. Before seeing Guillermo del Toro's film, I read an interview where he talked about meeting Sally Hawkins at a party and slurring into her hair, I'm writing a movie for you. Can you imagine writing a disabled part specifically for an abled actor? I will keep referring to her part here by Hawkins' name rather than her character, a mute custodian, because I cannot get over this idea. If a creator imagines our interiority so complex, why not let us show it? I cannot get over it because I don't speak ASL, and even I know Hawkins' signing wasn't great. The only excuse I can conjure is that Del Toro didn't want to create some sort of deaf custodian trope, after Marley Matlin's Children of a Lesser God Oscar win only 31 years ago, four years before the Americans with Disabilities Act passed, four years before we had rights. Sometimes my mom watched TV. Other times she'd flip through old photo albums and talk about how she looked in the past and present and how I didn't really look like her. Which was true. It was Virginia, my father's sister's body, that resembled mine. Both of us had thick thighs, knees that knocked together, ankles that rolled, and dark auburn hair. Our faces are the most similar. Nobody else in our family shares our noses. I knew growing up, even though I had not yet been diagnosed, that I was closer to her than my other kin. I looked at the Golden Globe's red carpet, covered in black dresses, without finding someone who looked like me or like Virginia. That doesn't mean we weren't there, but whoever was isn't out as disabled. Disabilities are also created through sexual assault. These things now described in the press very carefully held back, so the details do not suggest that someone may be unfit for work as a result of having been through this ordeal. While we collectively insist, mental instability means being unfit for work. We keep talking out of both sides of our mouths. We are helping no one without thinking this implication through. When I tried to prosecute, I went through it all over again, whatever that can mean. Assume everything. They say memory works by re-experiencing an act. So I got to talk about that one time with all the blood, when I was hospitalized because it poured from my body for weeks seemingly without root cause. My doctors thought it was a rectocele, but there was no reason I might have one. Later, at Hill Street, where we all get the blues, they wheeled me into the children's waiting area and left me there before my meeting with the DA. How does a walker let me experience all of that 
and still land me in a children's zone, accompanied by tiny furniture. Virginia had a series of sexual aggressions in her sheltered workshop. It was always hard to get the story. There was Freddie on the bus, who was thirty years older than her and unkempt, with long nose hairs. Once, while I was home for college, she excitedly planned, Goodbye, Freddie, hello, boys. My mother took days off from work and tried to talk her supervisors into separating him from her or the bus drivers into keeping him away from her. It was effective for a little while. Eventually, she had to leave. There is a scene in The Shape of Water where Sally Hawkins is threatened sexually by her boss. It is more harrowing when you remember that the highest rates of sexual assault are for disabled people who cannot communicate their attacks. At Virginia's sheltered workshop, she was paid what is known as a sub-minimum wage. It is still legal to pay disabled people for piecework or pennies for the hour. On average, Virginia's checks were about $6 a week, $9 on a good one. She was still devastated by having had to leave her job. The DA declined to prosecute my ex-husband. You have proof, I said. Yes, but our concern is that a jury of your peers will find it difficult to believe a man would do this to his disabled wife. A dozen jurors picked randomly by mail could look at me and decide my dowry was rape. He nearly fucked a hole through my body, and I lacked the language to explain it for years. Is the horror in this indelicate description from the act, the trauma, or both? Does my disability escalate it? What is assault at all if framed in terms of a custodian's rights? Where exactly is the line for my humanity? Where is Virginia's? How can justice be attained for those of us unable to identify the source of trauma? Who would do that? What is justice, anyway? The body itself does not hold the line, does not move us from avatars, does not provide equality. The more I do, the more accomplishments I rack up, the more likely my mother is to say, You look like me when I was young. I never will. I am older than she was in those photos. My syndrome is progressive, and anyway, how can one become another's past? It is less likely than knowing the future. They never have a problem figuring out how it works, when it's not consensual. They have a problem wanting the person, not the power over the person, not the other. In this movie, Sally Hawkins is asked, How do you fuck? as though mermaid and mermen have not bred fantasy. To give an anatomical response is an abled impulse. I have had disabled lovers. Each revealed new secrets between our bodies, never repeated, either to or with others. We don't do each other like that. In an argument with my mother over Virginia, she said it did not hurt her to see them treat Virginia this way. Virginia's sub-minimum wage, the hours taken away from my mother's own job, her own interests, her own life, also did not affect her. She did not understand why it impacts me as another disabled woman. Virginia and I are different. I try to explain that I look like her, 
that we deserve equal rights. She disagrees. I deserve a fair wage. Virginia does not. Was Sally Hawkins's affinity for the monster like my relation to Virginia's body? Is that gap smaller than that between me and those around me? See how even I other her now. In suturing myself back together, I am learning still. This is where I understand that if we are in the shape of water, which we are not and never would be, Virginia is always the one behind glass, prodded, unable to be heard. In our story, she always bears more risk. This is also where I understand that what I least liked about the movie was its undeniable truth, that even when allied against a common enemy, we are considered separate. We are left in the water. I understand why hashtag Time's Up initially forgot about disabled people. I do. We are not there. We are not visible on the carpet, in movies, in the workplace. Our bodies are not sexualized or understood as rapeable, and even those closest to us do not understand our pay. When my grandmother named her Virginia, could she have known that she was damning her to a future of piety or colonization? In naming me Carolyn, could my parents have known how often I would be cleaved north from south? In saying, time's up, me too, can you name disability as part of you? My ex-husband once wrote a wish fulfillment in which he ended up on a red carpet. He wrote that he could not conceive of having me there with him, specifically the optics of me in a wheelchair with him. He wrote incredulously, How does that even work? Virginia has always had photos of movie stars on her walls. She used to say, When you grow up, I'm going to take you to Hollywood. For a long time, I believed her. I moved to Los Angeles eventually, and I send postcards to her sometimes, where I know she is still watching movies on a small TV in her bedroom. She doesn't visit, but she always stays with me. Neither of us are in Hollywood. This year, when I run my tongue around my mouth, no, I am sharpening those new bones into teeth. Still Dreaming Wild Disability Justice Dreams at the End of the World by Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasinha Psych Survivors Know For the People in the Ice Concentration Camps Whisper to each other in the corners. Evade capture. Run. Find a corner. There is always one, even if it's only in your brain. You are still human, no matter how much they treat you otherwise. Maybe you become partially other than human because of what you endure. This does not make you less. There is also dignity in feral. We have been here before. We inhabit these lands. We are with you. Bathrooms are your friends, even if it's just five minutes, even if it's no door. I wish we didn't have to keep whispering, enduring, play dead, be invisible, disassociate, suck cock for a phone, organize in ways they never know how to see, 
bank on their incompetence, their petty squabbles over jurisdiction, them distracted by porn on a screen. Find each other again, disappear into the sky, memory, dream, as long as you need to. We have the tech for it. There will be an after. Survive for it. Remember back in 2019, before you survived, when you got cancer and we were all afraid you would die, either from the cancer or from the surgeon's ableist medical neglect killing you when you were on the table? Remember when it was just 2018, the first year disabled people built a network that gave out 80,000 masks in one month during the wildfires? The first time you heard the term large-scale air emergency, but not the last. Remember the first time you saw Disability Justice, DJ, listed as a section in the library, Audre Lorde's and Leroy Moore's faces next to each other on their books? Remember when guaranteed annual income went through, when subminimum wage got lifted, and D-slash-ID folks and people on SSDI could keep our income? Remember the medical abuse payouts? Remember when the Judge Rottenberg Center and the last forced treatment facilities for autistic youth closed and we had the mourning and celebration ceremony? Remember when you first were stockpiling masks, water, and gas before you had the whole crip of color elder farm we live on and roll through now? Remember when we first built the memorial for everyone we lost? Carrie Ann, Steve, all of them? Alice Wong, the editor of this anthology, asked me to write a follow-up to my essay, Cripping the Apocalypse, Some of My Wild Disability Justice Dreams. I had a hard time writing it. It's hard to dream when you're terrified, and these are terrifying times. The non-stop repeated blunt force traumas of the last three years, the horrors that are often beyond the worst we could imagine— that just keep coming and coming, from the concentration camps to the public charge rule, from Kavanaugh's ascension to the Supreme Court to Muslim ban number three, forests on fire on all sides of the world and ice melting on both poles, have put me and so many people I know in a deer-in-headlights somatic state of freeze. The end of the world is easier to read about in a book, it turns out, than to experience and to know how to respond to when it happens in real life. The past year, as I've been on tour with my book, Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice, I've often warned disabled queer Latinx maker and activist Annie Eleni Segarra's The Future is Accessible t-shirt. Often I ask audiences to stop, go inward, and imagine that future. As disability justice movement people, we know that access is just the first step on the way to a liberated, disabled future. It's not the whole of it, not by a long shot. But when I ask them to imagine that accessible future, let alone that disability justice future, they get stuck. The best they can imagine is maybe not dying in a concentration camp. Yet, as disabled people, we know that one of our biggest gifts is the mad, sick, disabled, deaf dreams we are always dreaming, and have always been dreaming, way beyond what we are allowed to dream. 
not in the inspiration-porn way that's the only way many abled people can imagine that disabled people dream of not letting disability stop us, wanting to walk or see or be normal above all costs, being a supercrip or an inspiration, but never human. I'm talking about the small, huge, everyday ways we dream crip revolutions, which stretch from me looking at myself in the mirror, disheveled and hurting on day five of a major pain flare, and saying, you know what, I'm not going to hate you today, to making disabled homes, disabled kinship, and community networks and disabled ways of loving, fighting, and organizing that not even the most talented abled could in a million years dream up. And despite all the ways we are in hell, we are still dreaming right now, as we build disabled collectives, homes, care teams, conferences, art projects. As I go to three care network meetings a week for friends facing cancer, kidney surgery, and ongoing mental health needs, as I finally, finally take a deep breath and ask for and accept the care I need most from my friends, and I am able to do this because of the collective work done to make accepting that care safe and possible. As I begin to become the disabled, middle-aged artist I used to be afraid of turning into, as I stop flying as much and learn to write and speak and share my work without traveling to Nebraska or Maine, in a community of other disabled writers and artists who are cripping the ways we produce, perform, and live excellent disabled artist lives. We're dreaming brilliant disabled responses to the violence of climate change on disabled people that threatens our ability to live. Mask Oakland, a disabled and trans-led grassroots organization, gave out 80,000 free masks with priority to houseless people during the large-scale air emergency of the Paradise and Camp Fires of Fall 2018 in California. As I write this during the Kincaid Fire of 2019, hashtag Power to Breathe, a network of 12 disability justice organizations, unites to create a network of accessible hubs with generators and air purifiers by and for disabled people organizing to survive PG&E's life-threatening power shutoffs. We are creating black and brown disability justice public cultural space and creating what disability justice literature means as Pittsburgh-based black disability justice activist Dustin Gibson builds a disability justice library within a neighborhood public library that throws out the confines of the Dewey Decimal System and seats Audre Lorde's and Leroy Moore's work next to each other, and as access-centered movement and black disabled movement artists like Alice Shepard, Neve, and Jerron Herman reimagine what disabled dance can be. There are so many vibrant, innovative, crip-made forms of organizing that are continuing to save everyone's asses in the face of Trump. Out of our fear, grief, and rage at the many deaths of our people, caused by insurance company denials of service and medical violence, to name one that still aches, United Healthcare's denial of a $2,000 antibiotic resulting in the murder of beloved, disabled, queer, Latinx, fat femme activist and lawyer, Carrie Ann Lucas, in February 2019. Health Justice Commons establishes the first-ever medical abuse hotline. 
Black disabled community lawyer Talila T.L. Lewis fights for black disabled and deaf people in prison who have been wrongfully convicted and lack access to ASL interpreters and video phones. Disabled sex workers, disabled migrants, disabled prisoners, and disabled people who use Medicaid and SSDI all self-organize for survival in the face of Trump. They are the reason why Medicaid and the ACA are still in existence, and the reason Trump's public charge rule, which aimed to block disabled immigrants from being able to enter the United States because of the tired idea that they would be burdens on the system, was defeated. New collectives, led by disability justice principles and disabled black and brown people, are popping up everywhere, from Disability Justice Network of Ontario and Detroit Disability Power to Fat Rose and more, marking a new generation of disability justice activism. My sibling, queer Korean disabled organizer Stacy Milburn, buys and makes accessible her home in East Oakland, the Disability Justice Culture Club. With $30,000 in $20 bills sent in from disabled community across the world. And 200 disabled and fat and elder people held signs that say irreplaceable and hashtag no one is disposable at the Crips and Fatties Close the Camps protest in front of the ICE office in San Francisco, part of a month of daily protests in August 2019 against Trump's torturous ICE concentration camps. These protesters, created by fat and disabled people drawing connections between our experiences with being locked up in psych institutions, nursing homes, and back wards, and those of immigrants, including disabled immigrants, being locked up right now. And we keep reaching for and finding each other, from Instagram hashtags and groups like hashtag disabled and cute, at disabled underscore personals, and at disabled hikers, to cultural gatherings led by black and brown disabled artists, events like I Want to Be With You Everywhere, Sins Invalid, and the Disability and Intersectionality Summit. I am writing this to remember and remind us. All of these are huge wins. Even and especially when we are frozen with fear, we are still collectively dreaming disability justice's future into being. Remembering the past to dream the future. We have always found each other. You know the kind of disabled person who just wants to show up for other disabled people, doesn't ask for any credit, just wants to do the right thing? My friend M says to me on the phone, Of course I do. I don't tell him, but he's always been that kind of person to me. Back in the day in Toronto, we were the two houses with ramps on our block. Long before gentrification mostly triumphed, our neighborhood was full of poor people and comfortably half-broken porches. Years before the modern disability justice movement, his house was a space where poor, multiracial, queer disabled people would hang out, support each other, plot, and laugh. For years, he held Friday night dinners where anyone could come over and eat some chicken. He would always talk to me about how important it was to him to center the least popular crips, the ones who were cranky, angry, difficult, crazy in ways that even other crazy people shied away from. He wanted the people who had the least community, because of all the ways ableism kills through isolation, to feel home.
A couple of weeks before that phone call, I'd been giving a workshop for a local QTPOC community center on CareWebs, how to create mutual aid networks as disabled people to get and give the care we need. The first half of the workshop had gone well. I'd talked a lot about how much unpaid care work people do, how hard it is to ask for care as sick and disabled and racialized people because of all the ways we've been forced to do that work for free and then punished for needing it in the first place. People nodded and sighed. It got rough when I said, Okay, so think of a need you have and take a minute to brainstorm what you need to get it met well. I felt the temperature in the room drop 10 degrees. People said, I'm sorry, can you explain the prompt again? Multiple times. They looked triggered and angry. I did the facilitator thing where I say, Hey, I'm noticing some tension in the room. Do people want to talk about it? And they did. They said they had no experience giving or receiving care in non-abusive ways. Some of them said they didn't believe that had ever happened. They couldn't imagine any time when disabled people had ever shown up for each other. Some people seemed to think I was promoting a fairy tale. Standing at the front of that sad, angry circle of people, I felt a mix of things. I felt really sad. I felt like a bad facilitator. When I was planning the workshop, how had I somehow forgotten that so many disabled people have zero experiences of care without being treated like shit? And a part of me was also incredulous. I was like, come on, no one's ever given you a cigarette when you were in line at the food stamps office? No one's ever brought you some takeout when you were sick? But I also got it. I thought about how huge we have become over the past 15 years, since the term disability justice was invented by a small group of intersectional, radical disabled people, and yet still how invisible we are if you do not know where to find us. I thought of the examples of crip-made care I have been so lucky and lifted to witness, the care collectives, disabled fundraisers for housing or my friend's accessible van, all flying under the abled radar, all supported, only unfunded except by us. And more than the fundraisers and collectives, the ways we have hung out without trying to fix each other, gone to visit friends in nursing homes and played board games, creating friendships and community hangouts that are disabled at the core, that are life-saving. As disabled people, we are often both hyper-visible and invisible at the same time. I think a lot about how some of our strongest power lies in how we organize, always in ways unknowable to the abled. There is no national or North American-wide DJ organization you can pay dues to. Disability justice exists every place two disabled people meet. At a kitchen table, on heating pads and bed talking to our loves. Our power and our vulnerability are often in our revolutionary obscurity and the horizontal ways of organizing that can come from it. Anyone can be a part of disability justice if they organize from their own spoons, own bodies and minds, and own communities. And foundations are starting to figure out that disability justice is the hot new thing they want to fund. And while we could use money... We certainly know what that usually does to movements. 
The nonprofit Industrial Foundation Complex has a long and storied history of investing in and then destabilizing and defanging movements and pitting groups against each other, often giving money to the whitest, the lightest, the ones with the most degrees and 501c3s. I firmly believe, as I have since I was a young radical studying guerrilla warfare, that our power is the strongest when we build on our own strengths and strike where the enemy is weak. We do best when we don't compromise or water our crippness down, make something disabled and wonderful out of the disabled knowledge our bodies and minds know, with or without anyone else's money or understanding. When I fear the loss of everything, I remember that before we had a word for ourselves, we still found each other. In my friend's house, on our ramped, half-busted front porches, and in nursing homes, in jails, in psych wards, and yes, in camps. I know that no matter how dire the circumstances, we will always keep finding each other, because this is what we have always done. Wilder, like wildfires. I keep talking about wild, disabled dreaming, so here are some wild-ass disabled dreams for some of what might be next. As our networks, people, collectives, and cultural groups grow, do we want to imagine a loosely organized network of communication? Do we want to come up with principles of how to act in solidarity with each other when foundations or systems of power try to make us compete? For when harm and power struggles inevitably happen? Disabled radical people, particularly BIPOC, black indigenous people of color, queer and trans, and other folks, are we going to keep writing, creating, and making art? What structures do we want to create to reach out to and build with each other? Social media has been a huge tool we've used to connect and break isolation over the past decade plus, but Facebook, Instagram, and most social media sites increasingly chokehold and shadow ban so many of us, preventing us from being able to post or rendering us unfindable if we do post. What if we made our own social media network? I'm never eager for any disabled person to die, but I gotta say, if the old racist parts of white disability studies and disability rights die out, and they will, we will have an opportunity. Right now, the old disability rights guard is angry at disability justice people because we've actually succeeded in getting more people to buy into being disabled because we aren't racist and we're not just focused on policy work. We're focused on building homes, building a million weird little groups and actions and projects and Instagram hashtags and media networks and stories and ramp shares and MCS, multiple chemical sensitivity, toolkit lending libraries, and housing projects and sex parties. So what happens if we can take over the Centers for Independent Living, the Disability Studies Programs, or make something entirely new and different, an interdependence and independence center, not a center for independent living? We've got 25 years until BIPOC are in the majority in the United States, and one of the wins of DJ is that more and more younger BIPOC are less afraid of disability, claiming it or integrating it into their activism. What do we do with this potential? As we're pushed out of coastal cities due to hypergentrification and as the sea levels rise, what new disabled homes and communities will we build in the exurbs and wastelands? 
What crib home spaces will we build on the islands that were Florida, in the Rust Belt and on the Res? What happens if we crip the Green New Deal? What if all those promised green infrastructures and jobs centered disability justice from the beginning? As we both push to maintain Medicaid, but know that existing structures of paid care attendants are underpaid, abusive, and difficult for many of us to access, and as we grow collective care structures, but know that for many of us they are not accessible due to our isolation, our desire to have someone other than our friends wipe our asses, a lack of friends or social capital, or our knowledge that even if we have those things, people get exhausted. What are our dreams of a collective mutual aid network? Of a society where free, just, non-gate-kept, crip-led care is a human right for all? What if we could make a society-wide mutual aid system for care based on disability justice principles? I'm thinking of something like the society in Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed, where the anarcho-syndicalist moon world had housing, work, and storehouses of clothes and needed items available for all. What if everyone had access to care like that? What if the right to care and access was in a foundational document of any new government? What if there was a CARE Act, maybe in an existing federal government, maybe in local indigenous, city, state, or bioregional areas? When she wrote the text for her housing fundraiser, my beloved comrade Stacy Milburn said, Disability justice dreams are what got me here, and I'm going to keep banking on them. Sure, maybe we all will be dead in five years because of all the climate change-fueled wildfire smoke circling the planet. However, I know we have continued through total adversity before. And I know this. We have what we always have had, and more. We know how to mourn, to pray, to persist, to find resistance in the smallest of spaces, to find each other and make homes, alone and together, to lay down in the middle of the road and keen with grief and rage and block traffic, to crip innovate, to do some shit that no one says is possible, to do something wild and unexpected under the radar, to keep going. On the Ancestral Plain, Crip Hand-Me-Downs and the Legacy of Our Movements by Stacy Milburn. My favorite boots are socks, crip socks, because they are made out of brown leather to look like shoes. Wearing them out in public as a wheelchair user is still socially acceptable. I loved these boot socks unabashedly and wore them every day until two years ago when I slipped in the bathroom at work. I fell because socks, unlike actual shoes, do not have gripping soles or soles in general. A non-disabled co-worker had to check on me on the bathroom floor. No incident report filed, but it was disabled childhood humiliation relived all over again. I put the boots away, dismayed and furious at how much I let myself love shoes that could cause physical injury. I don't have these kinds of strong feelings about all articles of clothing, these boot socks are special. These boots were worn by two of my personal heroes, Crip elders who became Crip ancestors when they passed, Harriet McBride Johnson 
and Laura Hershey. Harriet McBride Johnson, an American writer and disability rights attorney, went head-to-head against ableist assholes Peter Singer and Jerry Lewis and wore them in South Carolina. Her sister sewed these boots for her. Harriet's writing meant so much to me that Harriet is the secret name I've tucked away should I ever have the honor to name someone one day. When Harriet died, or maybe before, the shoes were gifted to her friend Laura Hershey in Colorado. Laura, a queer disabled poet and brilliant feminist thinker, was, and is, equally remarkable. Her poetry describes experiences the majority of people can't fathom and still resonates with people from all kinds of backgrounds. She is one of my favorite poets, just as Harriet is one of my favorite authors. When Laura died, her partner, Robin Stevens, whom I did not know at the time, asked for my address. The boot socks arrived here in California two weeks later. I don't understand why I was the lucky recipient, but I am honored to be in this lineage. Wearing them made me feel powerful and good in my body. That's why I was so let down when I fell. It felt like my ancestors let me down. Like my ancestors didn't know better, and it had an impact on me. It's not fair or reasonable to them, but it's how I felt. I think about Crip ancestorship often. It is tied to Crip eldership for me, a related but different topic. So many disabled people live short lives, largely because of social determinants of health, like lack of health care, inadequate housing, or unmet basic needs, such as clean air and water. Other times, the short lives are merely one truth of our body-minds, like the neuromuscular conditions of Harriet, Laura, and myself. I do not know a lot about spirituality or what happens when we die. But my crip, queer, Korean life makes me believe that our earthly body-mind is but a fraction, and not considering our ancestors is electing to see only a glimpse of who we are. People sometimes assume ancestorship is reserved for those who are biologically related, but a queered or cript understanding of ancestorship holds that our deepest relationships are with people we choose to be connected to and honor day after day. Ancestorship, like love, is expansive and breaks man-made boundaries cast upon it, like the nuclear family model or artificial nation-state borders. My ancestors are disabled people who lived looking out of institution windows, wanting so much more for themselves. It's because of them that I know that when I reflect on the meaning of a good life, an opportunity to contribute is as important as receiving the support one needs. My ancestors are people torn apart from loves by war and displacement. It's because of them I know the power of building home with whatever you have, wherever you are, whomever you are with. My ancestors are queers who lived in the American South. It's because of them I understand the importance of relationships and place and living life big, even if it is dangerous. All of my ancestors know longing, Longing is often our connecting place. I believe that our ancestors laugh, cry, hurt, rage, celebrate with us. 
most important, I believe they learn as we are learning, just as we learn from them. We grow knowledge and movements with them. We crip futurism with them. We demand and entice the world to change the way things have always been done with them. We change ourselves with them. They learn through us. When we become ancestors, we will also continue to learn. I speculate that Grace Lee Boggs is loving the conversations happening right now about disability in the context of what it means to be human, and as Grace's friends, the Fialka Feldman said to me last week, would consider that the reason to add disability justice to social justice is not just because it's another element of diversity or representation, but rather because disability justice, and disability itself, has the potential to fundamentally transform everything we think about quality of life, purpose, work, relationships, belonging. As a new colleague, Ria Dasgupta, said in a meeting about cripping the college campus this week, we can no longer afford add and stir politics. I speculate that a lot of the radical women of color thought leaders behind third-wave feminism are watching us give ourselves permission to be who we are in our bodies and minds. Trans liberation is changing the way some of them talk about their genders. They conceptualize the work being done at the fat disability intersection to be an experiment in both communities talking through the things both most want to avoid. The questions we are asking about the ethics of pace, as scholar Moya Bailey coined, tickle their brains. There are so many threads of conversation, but at the end of the day, the ancestors would be the first to say that a lot of our contemporary politics are practical ones in nature, wanting loved ones to live life well, to have needs met, to experience joy, to love, to do what needs to be done, to feel freedom. We all want things to be better for future generations, and ourselves and our ancestors too. I speculate that soon our recently departed Carrie Ann Lucas will settle into her ancestorship. She will remind people to be fierce and unapologetic in all things. She'll trailblaze wherever she is, just as she did here. She will continue to transform how we think about the world and how to be in it, especially around the importance of showing up, loving hard, remembering ritual, giving 200%, believing in yourself and one another when others are foolish not to, creating the community or outfit or experience or vocation you wish for yourself. I wonder what she might learn from us, too. I wear my boots, not on days where I need to transfer standing on tile, but often. My ancestors and I are learning and loving, together. The Beauty of Spaces Created for and by Disabled People by S. C. E. Smith The theater is dim and just warm enough that I don't need my sweater, which I leave draped on the back of my creaky wooden seat. We are hushed, waiting for the lights to come up on the swooping ramp where the dance piece Descent, choreographed by Alice Shepard in collaboration with Laurel Lawson, will be performed. This is one of my favorite parts of any theatrical production, the moment before, when anything might happen, 
where all the barriers between us have fallen away. Shepard and then Lawson roll out, and they begin weaving intricate patterns with their bodies and wheelchairs while the music soars over them, with Michael Mag's lighting and projection weaving around them. The audio describer speaks in a low, rhythmic voice that broadcasts to the whole room, interplaying with the performance and the music. There is something weighty and sacred here. It is very rare, as a disabled person, that I have an intense sense of belonging, of being not just tolerated or included in a space, but actively owning it. This space, I whisper to myself, is for me. Next to me, I sense my friend has the same electrified feeling. This space is for us. I am spellbound. I am also overwhelmed, feeling something swell in my throat as I look out across the crowd to the wheelchair and scooter users at the front of the raked seating, the ASL interpreter in crisp black next to the stage. Canes dangle from seat backs, and a gilded prosthetic leg gleams under the safety lights. A blind woman in the row below me turns a tiny model of the stage over in her hands, tracing her fingers along with it in time to the audio description. I really wish I could have crammed all my disabled peeps in there, I say later. Members of many marginalized groups have this shared experiential touchstone this sense of unexpected and vivid belonging, and an ardent desire to be able to pass this experience along. Some can remember the precise moment when they were in a space inhabited entirely by people like them for the first time. For disabled people, those spaces are often hospitals, group therapy sessions, and other clinical settings. That is often by design. We are kept isolated from one another, as though more than two disabled people in the same room will start a riot or make everyone feel awkward. The first social setting, where you come to the giddy understanding that this is a place for disabled people, is a momentous one, and one worth lingering over. I cannot remember the first time it happened to me. Perhaps a house party in San Francisco, or an art show or a meeting of friends at a cafe. The experiences blend together creating a sense of crip space, a communal belonging, a deep rightness that comes from not having to explain or justify your existence. They are resting points, even as they can be energizing and exhilarating. Crip space is unique, a place where disability is celebrated and embraced, something radical and taboo in many parts of the world, and sometimes even for people in those spaces. The idea that we need our own spaces, that we thrive in them, is particularly troubling for identities treated socially as a negative. Why would you want to self-segregate with the other cripples? For those newly disabled, crip space may seem intimidating or frightening, with expectations that don't match the reality of experience. Someone who has just experienced a tremendous life change is not always ready for disability pride or defiance, needing a kinder, gentler introduction. The creation of spaces explicitly for marginalized people and not for others has been fraught with controversy. Proponents insist they're necessary for people to have intra-community conversations 
and they create a safe environment for talking through complex issues. They also may say that people find them empowering, especially those who have been cut off from their community. It isn't that non-disabled people are unwelcome at this dance performance, but the space has not been tailored to their needs and designed to seamlessly accommodate them, and they stand out. The experience pushes the boundaries of their understanding and expectations. During the Q&A, the dancers roll forward and the ASL interpreter trails them. Any questions or comments? One asks, the interpreter's hands moving swiftly in sync. The audience is momentarily frozen, as all audiences are at this question every time it is asked. The disabled people are still processing. We feel slightly giddy. This is a piece that speaks our common language, silently and beautifully, that reaches the deep parts of us we normally keep buttoned up and hidden away. The non-disabled people are hesitant, nervous, unsure about what to say in response to the work in progress we'd all been invited to witness. I liked the ramp, one of the non-disabled people says hesitantly, gesturing at the set. It must have been an unsettling experience to be invited into our space, to be on the other side of the access divide, to see disabled people spreading their wings and soaring, to see wheelchairs turned into powerful extensions of dancers' bodies, enabling them to do things physically impossible for bipedal people, those in positions of power evidently fearing that people are talking about them behind closed doors persistently insist on barging into such spaces. They call these spaces divisive, and their organizers are told that they aren't valuing the contributions of allies. These bursts of petty outrage at stumbling upon one of the few places in the world that is not open to them inadvertently highlight exactly why such places are needed. This is precisely why they are needed. As long as claiming our own ground is treated as an act of hostility, we need our ground. We need the sense of community for disabled people created in crip space. Yet, like any ground, it comes with soft spots and pitfalls, a reminder that the landscape is not uniform, can even become treacherous. Even as some of us find a sense of belonging within these corners of the world carved out for one another, not everyone feels welcome in them. Disability is a broad sociocultural identity and experience, and not everyone thinks about disability in the same way. This can be the paradox of crib space. When do we exclude others in our zeal to embrace ourselves, with our refusal to consider the diversity of human experience? How can we cultivate spaces where everyone has that soaring sense of inclusion, where we can have difficult and meaningful conversations. Crip space is akin to a fragile, natural place. It must be protected in order to preserve the delicate things within, while remaining open to change with the seasons and the passage of time. That protection sometimes requires sacrifice or challenge, awkward questions, but that makes it no less vital. Because everyone deserves the shelter and embrace of crip space to find their people and set down roots in a place they can call home. After the dance, after the Q&A, after the drinks and snacks in the lobby, we must regretfully disperse 
back out into the chilly December night. The theater is in the Tenderloin, a community in transition, nudie cuties cheek by jowl with hipster bars, and as we fan out across the sidewalk, stained with bird shit and mysterious sticky substances that cling to wheels and canes, we must return once more into the outside world, beyond crip space. The barriers begin to reappear. A child across the street points at the phalanx of wheelchair users and says, Look, Mommy. Two adults stare, surprised when an adult wheelchair user, unaccompanied by an attendant, braving the world alone, transfers into his car and slings his wheelchair into the back seat, pulling away from the curb with the quiet hum of an expensive German engine. At the BART station around the corner, the elevators are, as usual, out of order. This is Alejandra Ospina. We hope you have enjoyed these unabridged selections from Disability Visibility, first-person stories from the 21st century, edited by Alice Wong. This program was directed by Barbara Vlahidis and Linda Korn. Executive producer, Linda Korn. Introduction and compilation copyright 2020 by Alice Wong. Production copyright 2020. Penguin Random House, LLC. All rights reserved.